up guys, my name is Nick Song and you're listening to This Is Zoning Life. On this podcast, we bring you the stories heard on and around Exeter's campus. Graduation is about three days out. Class of 2018, my class is set to graduate. Exeter's been through a lot. The last three years have been jam-packed with change. Principal McFarland came in when I came in as a new lower. I sat down with Principal McFarland to talk about her life, what happened before she came to Exeter, growing up as a third culture kid as her family moved around the world. We also talked about her experience attending Andover, being a part of the first female class, her studies into academia, how she ended up as a professor, and eventually Exeter's headmaster, as well as reflect on these last three years. Thank you guys so much, and we'll catch you next time. started? Oh yeah. Okay. So no, I, I don't. I got to Andover kind of accidentally. Hmm. Probably the more important part of how I grew up was that my family moved all over the world from the time I was really born until really until my dad retired and I was a grown-up. So I moved 20 times by the time I was 21, went to three different second grades, lived in lots of different countries, I uh, went to boarding school only because the alternative was for my, we were living in the Philippines and the alternative was for my mother to homeschool me and we both figured that wouldn't be the best possible plan right. for us. Um, I went to a boarding school in Virginia because my aunt and uncle lived in that town and didn't like it and then I had a friend who was going to Andover and a friend who was going to Abbott Academy and they said, oh, come to school with us and I didn't know anything about it, but I thought it's bound to be better than the school I'm in now. Right. So I went, but, and it was, you know, wonderful experience and I'm really grateful for everything that happened there and feel like it was pretty remarkable, but I don't think of myself um, as a prep school person in the same way probably that maybe other people do. Right. Uh, and just out of curiosity, uh, were you in like a military family? Um, no, my father worked for a multinational, um, but one that in the, really I think the period from the post-war period through into the late 70s, early 80s was a period, sort of a unique period in American history where people who worked for multinationals were, were often Americans who were expats in right. various places. And after that, there was a gradual shift, I think, to having people who worked for those companies be citizens of the countries in which those operations were based, but that shift happened over probably over a period of 20, 30 years uh, from the post-war period forward. Um, so that's, that's how we did that. But I went to school with a lot of kids who were either local at local schools or else military or diplomatic corps or multinational kids, and we all had a kind of, you know, um, uh, third culture kids. We were all right. pretty much third culture kids growing up that way. And while I always knew that I was American, I didn't have any of the reflexes of an American. I didn't have the body language. I didn't have the wardrobe. I didn't have the accent. I didn't have the pop cultural references. Right. You know, I really didn't know much about the U.S. particularly at all. Right. Um, you know, until I actually went to school here. Mm. 
um, mostly as feeling more like an international student than anything else. Um, you know, I was in the first class of girls that went to Andover. I was uh, early in co-education in college. I was early uh, at a time in graduate school when there weren't many women in those places. So that was probably the other really formative piece right. of always sort of being both in and out of the club at the same time. Um, and really quickly, if you could just uh, you know say your name, I guess. Oh, yeah. Lisa McFarland. Um, and you are the. I own them. Yeah. I'm Lisa McFarland. I'm the principal instructor at Phillips Exeter Academy. Awesome. Um, you know, one, one thing you just brought up was this idea of like a third culture kid. Um, you know, that's something that I I've kind of looked at as like an Asian American person. With um, you know, my father was born in Korea, moved over, um, and my mom like is pretty much first slash second gen as well. Um, and I've really only heard it within that context, but it's really inter interesting to hear it within the context of like moving around the world and stuff like that. Um, I was just wondering if you could first like explain what that kind of term means. So I think of a third culture kid as, you're, for me, what it meant was um, not really being fully absorbed into the culture of your national citizenship, which is, after all, a part of your identity, but in lots of ways a formal piece of paper, part of your identity. So not really being fully there, but also not being really fully in any of the places where you physically live, so that you're always kind of back and forth between two places and always a little bit provisional in terms of where you are. And both my parents were working class, first generation college students. My mom's Italian, first generation Italian. Um, so there were lots of ways in which my family had a lot of sort of first moments and a lot of places where um, either socioeconomically or educationally or geographically or in terms of nationality. There were lots of crossings um, throughout my, my generation and my parents' generation. So I think of a third culture kid as um, being a little bit betwixt in between. Um, there are some advantages to growing up that way. I think a huge advantage to growing up that way was being really flexible, um, being pretty adaptable, being um, able to see oneself a little bit from the outside, which is a handy trait. Um, can be paralyzing sometimes, but it's a pretty handy trait. I remember really vividly a couple of things when I was a kid. Um, one was we were living in Italy, and you know, my mother's Italian, of Italian descent, and a woman said to my mother, I don't believe you, can, you are really American. Your children are way too well behaved. <laughs> and my mother said, oh, well, I'm Italian. And the woman said, well, that explains it. <laughs> and if you just unpack that little exchange, there were so many cultural stereotypes in there and so many ways in which my mother pulled on one piece of her identity to sort of offset right, the negativity yeah. of another exactly. piece of her identity. And it was, it was pretty hilarious in a lot of ways. Um, so I had, a, from a really early age, this recognition that I was not me. Mm. I was me. 
I was a representation representative of my family. I was a represent, representative of my father's work. I was a representative of my country, you know, and that all of those identities were part of me. And that whenever I made a move, I, there was a ripple effect that was out of me. Uh, if I was badly behaved, if I did well in something, it wasn't me. It was a, a much more rippling effect. Um, I think that's really handy because it can serve to deflate a little bit the sense of ego and entitlement that is not very pleasant. Right. Um, it's also debilitating in that you can, you're always aware of the forces that are sort of swirling around you. You're very, very aware of that. When you arrived at Andover, um, you know, as you said, it, it was the first class of girls over there. Mm -hmm. um, can you just talk really quickly about like what the experience was at least coming into an all formally like all boys school, I guess, um, especially, you know, boarding school? Well, Andover, unlike Exeter, Andover had a girls school down the street. Oh, gotcha. So literally just down the hill was Abbott Academy. And so when Andover went co-ed, they merged with Abbott Academy. So it wasn't as if there had never been girls there. Um, the girls at Abbott and the boys at Andover often took classes together, and there's a whole history to that relationship. What it did mean, though, was that Abbott Academy students and alumni were anxious about whether or not they would lose their identity and lose their own school and lose their own history. And so that was a, coming in as a as a girl who had been accepted to Andover, you, and I lived down at Abbott uh, in a dorm that was down on the Abbott campus, and some of my dorm mates were girls who had gone to Abbott and were still gonna graduate from Abbott. Mm. So I was really aware there too of the fact that these two communities had come together and that while that was a really wonderful thing and exciting and just you know great opportunities and an enlargement of of the things that were possible. It also, for a lot of people, came with a little bit of a sense of bittersweet loss right. or and concern about that and a desire to make sure that their own school's history was celebrated and remembered. Um, and I know and Andover had to, had to really think about how to do that in a way that was graceful and, right. and honored that. And so the Abbott campus is still a central part of Andover and there are some things about Andover that really pay tribute right. to that history. So it was a little different than it was at Exeter where um, one of the members of one of the early classes of girls here told me that um, when she was here, one of the faculty members referred to them as the boys and the not boys. But <laughs> we didn't quite have that. Right, right. I would say the biggest sort of iconic moment for me at Andover was that it was a couple of moments that really epitomize what I think is really important about schools like ours. Um, one was my first American history class, so I was an upper, so I took a US history, and there I was on the first day of history, and we had all read the reading for the day, and the teacher, who was a wonderful teacher, asked, what did you think of that? And several of us you know, kept saying, well, the book says, and she kept saying, I didn't ask you what the book said. Well, on page 27, it says, I didn't ask you what it said on page 27. Well, I think the author, I didn't ask you. And then she's just sort of laughing, and she's being very nice, but she keeps saying, no. And then finally she said, I asked you what you thought, what you thought. 
And finally someone said, well, I think, and then we were off. Hmm. Um, but we all were in this space of learning that it was what we thought that mattered. And that was really a powerful moment. And the other piece that was really powerful for me was um, leaving class and walking across that beautiful campus. And a boy in my class came running up after me. And he said, hey, what you said in class, that was really, really interesting. And, and he had a question. And it was the first time that I had ever had an encounter with a member of the opposite sex that was about my brain. Hmm. And that was really, I'm to this day grateful to this classmate of mine um, who I see fairly regularly at things and years ago reminded him that of that story. He had totally forgotten it, of course, because it didn't mean anything to him. Um, but I reminded him that, you know, that, of that moment and that it had been a really powerful one for me. So after uh, graduating from Andover, um, kind of, you know, uh, choosing to continue into like academia and stuff like that, uh, I'm just wondering what, what happened after you graduated? From Andover? I went to college. Um, I changed majors about seven or eight times, drove my father crazy. Uh, kept, he kept asking me what I was going to major in and I would tell him and then in the next conversation it would have changed. Right. Um, but I finally did major in English and American Studies. And I was really interested in American Studies because I had grown up outside of the U.S. So I, you know, this was both something that I was theoretically supposed to be very familiar with and yet I knew relatively little about. Right. And I was kind of fascinated about, you know, to learn about the various, um, you know, forces that had shaped my country and forces into which I had been kind of plunked um, belatedly without having fully been shaped by them myself. So I was kind of fascinated by that. And it's also, you know, those interdisciplinary programs are wonderful, wonderful for people who are intellectually promiscuous because you don't actually have to decide right. what to major in. You can read literature and history and religion and art and urban planning and um, visual studies. And, you know, I did all of that and really kind of approached it with a question of, I want to find out about X, what are all the different ways in which I can understand X, as opposed to starting with a text, whether that text is a work of literature or a work of science or whatever, you, you know, you start with a problem or a question. And in those days, American studies had these great, fun questions like, why is jazz like a skyscraper? And, you know, the idea was to really just think about what's underneath, underneath, underneath. Mm -hmm the rationale for how those things come into being. So it was super fun and very playful intellectually right. to be in that space. So that was really fun. Um, and I loved that. And I didn't know what I wanted to do when I graduated from college, came here to Exeter on an internship, mm -hmm. loved teaching, applied to grad school, went to grad school in American studies, spent seven years at the University of Michigan, where I coached crew and built a boathouse. And wow founded a 501c3 that still exists Dang. to support, you know, Michigan rowing. Right. And that was, that was pretty enlightening as well. I, I want to slow down. Yeah. For yeah. <laughs> and, um, first of all, I just love the, the phrase uh, intellectually promiscuous, just because it, it really, it captures just like, you know, um, I guess how a lot of the brains here work just in the sense of always wanting to tap into something new and not really out of, you know, out of like boredom of the other one, just in the sense that there's always so much more to explore. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I'm kind of curious about what your experience was like interning at Exeter um, 
first of all, like what uh, what made you want to you know uh, go forward with that decision, as well as what that experience was like for you? I thought I would like teaching. It was a low risk way. You know, it's a year. Let's see if you like it. It was a, a school that was a lot like where I had gone to school. So it was really a low risk way to try something out for a year. And um, it was practically professional malpractice for Exeter to hire me. I was 21. I had no idea what I was doing. I had the virtue of having a newly minted college um, diploma. But really, you know, that was a fairly slim credential uh, when one thinks about it. Um, so really, it was it was just one of those sort of serendipitous moments of I think I would like to do this, and this seems like a good way to try it out. And I'm not in any huge rush to make tons of decisions. And I knew I didn't want to work in, you know, I didn't knew I didn't want to work for a company. I knew I didn't want to work in finance. I knew I didn't want to do a lot of, you know, go into a big organization. Um, I wanted to do something that felt more creative. I wanted to do something that felt more centered on people. Mm-hmm. I had loved doing research for my senior thesis. I thought that was really fun. What was the topic? Oh, I wrote it. My senior thesis was on Sylvia Beach, who ran the Shakespeare and Company bookstore in Paris in the 1920s and 30s, and who was the person who published James Joyce's Ulysses. Wow. And she was originally from Princeton, New Jersey, and so the university had all of her papers. And at that point in time, nobody had really written about her. So they were sitting there and hadn't been looked at ever. Um, Now people have done some writing about her. But at the time, I went in to talk to my advisor. And I said, I don't want to write another senior thesis on some book that everyone's written a gazillion things on and nobody really cares or will read. I want to do something that no one's ever done. And he said, why don't you go over to the rare books room and see what you can find? And there was this collection sitting there that no one had looked at. So I had a blast doing that, um, you know, to kind of, to read through somebody's papers and their letters and the sort of um, minutia of their lives and sort through and find meaning and try to see their life for the fullness that it, that it was, was really pretty fascinating. And she was a really, really interesting person mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. A uh, young woman who went to Paris, wanted to be involved with artists, loved books, um, opened a bookstore at a time when most young women wouldn't have done that. Right. Um, she was a really interesting, courageous person. Published like one of the you know best novels of like the 20th century. A, yes, a seminal novel in the, in the 20th century in every sense of the word, and one that was banned <laughs> in many, many places. Yeah. And um, she, the university had the card catalog from the library, from uh, Shakespeare and Company, which was also a lending library. And it was fascinating because you could go into the card catalog and you could see who had checked out which books. So you actually could figure out who was in Paris in the 20s as writers. And there were American writers, British writers, French writers, German writers, uh, you name it. Lots of artists, all that. It, her bookstore was a kind of hub of, of in, you know, international um, aesthetics, like culture, yeah. yeah, culture and aesthetics, and so you could look at the cards and you could see who had checked out which books, and often they would write little notes on the card catalog card so that you could see what like Hemingway had written <laughs> about a particular book, and then what Fitzgerald might have written after him on that card. So it was kind of it was really fun to chart that. You miss that 
now in an era of electronic like footprints. Yeah. Yes, you don't really see that handwritten commentary yeah. in there. That's freaking cool. It was very yeah. cool. It was it was really cool, and it was quite funny because you know how you go into a bookstore now and you see staff picks. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was kind of like yeah. the 1920s <laughs> card catalog version of staff picks. It's so, yeah, like the um, you know the endorsement from like all these other like oh my god, I can't even imagine just. Yeah keeping through them. Yep. Gertrude Stein was there, Ezra Pound, and you name it. There were fascinating people all through. And then all of the great French writers of the period were there as well. So it was, it was pretty fascinating. So after Exeter, you went to UMich? Um, University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, yep. So, uh, well, first of all, let me ask you about crude. Did you, yeah. uh, did you row like in high school and stuff? I rowed for a term in high school because my ex-boyfriend bet me that I would never do it. <laughs> and so I, I needed a sport and I did, and it was in the early days of Title IX. Hmm. There's a theme here, right? right. Um, so Title IX came in right around the time that I was in high school. And so you could still, when I went to college, you could still become a varsity athlete if you were just a sucker for punishment and just we're going to work really hard, never having done the sport before. By the time I graduated from college, we were recruiting uh, young women mm -hmm. from schools like Exeter and Andover who had rowed for three and four years. Right. So it was a real sea change there. So yeah, I rowed a little bit in, in high school. When I got to college, um, the captains of the women's crew found me and said, you rowed, come down to the boathouse. And it was just fun to do, um, and so I did it. And then when I got to graduate school, because um, in those days you stood in line to sign up for your classes, I was standing in line and this young woman came up to me and she said, I know you, you are Lisa McFarlane, you went to Andover, you went to Princeton with my sister, I know your brother, I know that you rowed, I'm rowing here, we need a coach, would you do it? And I said, sure. So that's how I got involved with rowing at Michigan. And it was, um, it was a period of incredible growth. We, when, when, we, when I started, we had big, old, heavy wooden Pocock boats on truck tires down next to the automotive testing plant on the Huron River. And beautiful we stored scenery. Yeah. Beautiful scenery. Yeah. And we stored the oars underneath the boat. So it was really, it was really not optimal. Um, and we stored the boats in an old gymnasium that Michigan had that was three miles away. We didn't have a trailer or anything. So in the middle of the night, we would go down and get 20 people on a boat and carry it three miles downtown to the middle God. of the street to put it <laughs> away. So it was, there was, let's just say there was a lot of infrastructure that mm. needed to be mm. built for rowing. So uh, some, of the, some of the crew members and I decided that we would start a 501c3 and try to raise some money from alumni. So creating and, like a fund for... Yeah, you know, it was basically to create a, a you know, like a um, Friends of Michigan Rowing, right. Michigan Rowing Association as a, as a place for people to donate money. Um, and so we set that up and managed to make enough money to get a kit for a pole barn, which we built. Um, and, and that's like where you store um, all the stuff for? Yeah, yeah. So it was, you know, it wasn't a fancy schmancy boathouse. It was basically a pole barn. Um, that came in a kit hmm. and which we built over the course of a week or so um, and we built some racks inside and stored the boats in there right. and um, then we raised some money and I hired 
um, so that I wouldn't have to coach anymore. I hired uh, a woman who had been a varsity rower at Wisconsin, who was a really outstanding athlete, outstanding horsewoman, and she took over the program for a while. And so, like all during this, uh, you were also teaching. I was a grad student. Grad student. Okay. Yeah. So I was teaching and going to school. And, right. Yeah. And so, um, you know, is I guess if the internship here was like the introduction to teaching and stuff, was a graduate like being a graduate student, um, was that a continuation of that? Like where you kind of realize like I want to do this or was it? Yeah, I really, really enjoyed it. I, I had, I was in a great program. I, I loved the program that I was in. It was really eclectic people, really diverse interests, fantastic charismatic faculty, um, just really a great esprit de corps amongst the grad students. Um, you know, we had really supportive, wonderful faculty members with whom we worked. So it was really fun. Um, sometimes we each had our own class. So I taught some freshman English and where I had my own class of people. And then other times you would work for a faculty member being their sort of graduate of yeah. their TA. And that was really fun too, because you were part of a group and, you know, we had a lot of great conversations about what we were reading and what we wanted our students to come away with and how to um, you know have different kinds of conversations in our classes and we got to work with the professor on the kinds of things that we felt were important uh, for him to talk about in the lecture so it was really it was really fun mm. and then um, you know when you're a graduate student you go where the work is right. you don't get to pick and I just got incredibly lucky that I got a job at the University of New Hampshire, which was my first job out of grad school and probably, I mean, I was just ridiculously lucky. And so did you uh, immediately go into like, you know, professor role after that or? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I came as an assistant professor uh, in 1987. And um, my then husband and I hit the jackpot because we both got tenure track jobs at the same university, yeah. which is, pretty rare, so we felt like we were really um, just incredibly lucky. And it's a beautiful campus and a great university and terrific colleagues and a part of the country that is beautiful. Right. So it just seemed like um, and was just a really lucky thing for us. And so, um, you know, I guess like you've been in New Hampshire ever since, I guess, or more or less? More or less, yeah. How does that feel, I guess, when you're comparing that to like earlier, you know, with all that stuff? Yeah, it's right. funny because um, I've now lived in New Hampshire for a long time uh, and I do feel very uh, connected to New Hampshire and feel a lot of affection for this strange and quirky place, which I think people have a lot of misconceptions about as, as a place. Um, I don't think Exeter uh, the academy in general really gets where it's located. Uh, mm. You know, I think it would be great for the school to have a deeper sense of, of what it means to be located in this particular part of the world. Um, and, and what does that mean? So, you know, we're such a we're such a cosmopolitan and global community here, and we tend to go off to far flung places to find adventure and learning opportunities for learning, and that's great and wonderful, but sometimes I think that makes us not as observant to the things that are closest at hand. 
and to maybe not be as aware of what's unique and um, valuable about what's close at hand. So for example, probably not many people at Exeter know that there's close to 70 languages spoken in the Manchester school system, that it's a refugee center. And there are people and students in those schools from all over the world, um, including students whose families come from cultures that are historically non-literate. Mm. So most people probably don't know that that's um, probably one of the most unique situations you could have, and it's 20 minutes away, 25 miles away. Um, probably most people, unless you've taken maybe a class with Mr. Aronian or Mr. Matlack or, you know, um, Ms. Goddard or somebody, might not know that the marine ecosystem um, and the New Hampshire seacoast is one of the most unusual and quite, quite special. Um, seven rivers flow into Great Bay, which flows into the Piscataqua, which flows out into the Gulf of Maine, which is one of the rich, richest fishing grounds in the world, and which is a, um, a kind of early warning system for ocean health mm. and for the, um, the fishing stocks in the world and food supplies. So work that's done right out here at the mouth of the Squamscott right. is actually work that helps us understand the future of global fishing stocks right. and aquaculture. So probably most people don't know what's available to them there. Um, there is a huge and fascinating uh, sustainable agriculture program in the state of New Hampshire. Probably most people don't know that Mr. Merrill, Ms. Merrill's mother-in-law, Mr. Merrill's mother is the commissioner of agriculture in the state of New Hampshire and that they own one of the oldest family farms, dairy farms in the state, continuously owned dairy farms. So, you know, there are some like yeah, really awesome. cool, yeah. unique um, things here that offer a lot of scope for learning. Right. And sometimes I think we look far away and don't and neglect what's right in front of us. Right. I do think my children, having grown up in New Hampshire, have an unnatural attachment to real estate. I, yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know what that feels like. Yeah. I accept it right. as a fact, but I don't know what it feels like. Real estate of, of being like like our house. Yeah, <laughs> it was like yeah, point to something and be like, like that's yeah. This is our house. I'm like right. yeah, that's our house. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, you know, what was that like? I guess did you feel like you needed to, um, you know, kind of like move your children around and want to have like you know raise them up in a similar experience as you, or did you almost like want to have the opposite? Oh, no, I really wanted them to have the experience that I've had. And so um, whenever we had sabbaticals, we made a point to leave the country mm. and to go live, live abroad. And the, places, the place that we went to was the Netherlands, which is a place that I had lived a couple of times while I was growing up. And I had a, my husband had research colleagues at um, the Technical University at Delft, and I had a Fulbright at Utrecht University and their American Studies program. So we both had, you know, both of those are very international universities. Um, almost everything taught in English because it's everybody's second language. Right, yeah. And the Dutch, you know, are very aware and very global in that sense. So we, we would spend our sabbaticals in the Netherlands working at Dutch universities. Uh, and I really wanted my kids to um, have the experience not of traveling as a tourist. I wanted them to have the experience of living someplace else. I wanted them to go to school right. in another culture. I wanted them to be living someplace long enough that you got sick and had to go to the drugstore. Yeah. Um, and you had to do your laundry and 
and that you got bored. You know, I, the, the idea of just traveling for a couple of weeks and thinking you've seen a place, it, I mean, it's fun yeah. to do that, but it's, it's, not, um, it's not what it really means to live in a place. So I really wanted my kids to have that experience. And I, I think it was really uh, important for my kids. They feel really connected to the Netherlands. My younger daughter wants to work overseas her whole life. Is, uh, you know, her entire college career has been spent trying to get to other countries, right. <laughs> which she's done quite well, I must say. Um, so yeah, I definitely wanted my kids to have that experience. What was the decision that made you come to Exeter? I had been in higher ed for a long time. I loved it. I had a lot. One of the things that was great about working at a research university is there's always um, something new and different that you can try your hand at. Uh, it, you know, there are just these places with filled with opportunity and possibility, and I really loved that. And I loved the mission of a public university. Uh, those are was I felt. I feel very idealistic about public education and public higher education in particular. Um, my first opening of school address was on the relationship between the deed of gift and the moral act. Right. So which come out of, for me, they come out of the same sort of intellectual tradition. Um, so I really loved that, but I was always the kind of faculty member who loved working with freshmen and sophomores more than I loved working with graduate students. Right. I really liked working with students who were still trying to figure out what they wanted from the university, where, how, they, how they wanted to be. And at the university, of course, and appropriately, people think about what they want to be. Right. And in high school, in early college, you're thinking more about who you want to be. Mm. And so I was really interested in the who right. does someone want to be. So it seemed like a good thing to try to go kind of upstream, if you will. Yeah, go like, I guess, explore that whole identity aspect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and see what that, and you know, where, where, did, where were the kinds of things, places that my students had come from, and right. what were the kinds of things that um, they brought with them when they went to the university. And, you know, Exeter, I think, is better than most schools in this regard, but I do think that we don't, um, we don't give middle school and high school students enough credit. Mm. It's particularly true in middle school. I think middle schoolers are way more ready for things than most yeah. middle schools give them credit for. And I think that's even true at a place like Exeter, where a lot of the um, way the curriculum is structured, I think doesn't give quite enough room for the creativity and um, passion and direction that students could bring themselves to that. Mm -hmm. So I was kind of interested in seeing how that would play and what that looked like. Um, and I think Exeter is now more flexible and creative a little bit curricularly than it was when I arrived. I think we have more ways for students to chart their own courses. Um, and I. So I think about something like the Center for the Study of Boys and Girls Lives, right. and Rebrand and Spark, which right. is actually something where you don't just study something, but it actually you have the capacity to turn that into something that's going to make a difference and, and change something, change, yeah. tangible change. It's a rigorous intellectual exercise that results in a tangible change. 
I think that's true with the fruit fly course. I think that's true with the green umbrella course. I think that's true with the social innovation course. So I think, you know, I think there are more places now around campus where you combine a kind of intellectual power mm. um, of a place like this with the passion to actually make something different happen uh, that the students have. And it, that's um, often, it requires adults giving up some control which is scary, especially at a residential school where things can go wrong. <laughs> um, um, but if, you're, if your goal is to teach, to give students the opportunity to develop their own voices and to learn how to have those make a difference in the world, yes. this would be the place to do it. And then you have to kind of just be ready to live with what you wish for. Yeah. And sometimes it will be rocky and, and like, okay, that didn't go the way we thought it would. And other times it will be fine and surprise you that it goes better than you thought it would. Right. But if we don't do that here and practice that here and take our lumps when, we, when they're due to us, uh, then when you leave, often you're too scared to do it or you have this expectation that it's going to go perfectly and get frustrated and angry when it doesn't. Better to learn now that things are really provisional and don't always go the way you expect them to and good people doing their best are going to step in it sometimes, right. and that's okay. I think one of the differences between Exeter and other, well, I'll say Exeter and the university, um, for example, is that the university people were much more able to have it not go the way they expected it to. So it's like, okay, well, that was a good try. Back to the drawing board. Right. And it was, it was not a catastrophe when it didn't go well. Sometimes here I feel like we expect everything to go really well, and so when it doesn't, people's reactions are out of proportion right. to what actually happened. Right. It causes the overreaction. Yeah. Like to, yeah, yeah. And so I think one of the things that's great about opening up the curriculum and having it be more flexible is you get to practice, ooh, that didn't work, did it? Okay, well, let's figure that out yeah. again. Um, or gosh, that really made me angry. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean for that to happen. Can we figure out how to get this back on track? Okay, right. we can do that. And you have to, you have to practice that. Right. Um, Preventing that overseer almost. Pardon? Preventing that like overseer of like direction, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's fun, yeah, right? It's yeah. fun to kind of see that. It's the intellectual uh, promis uh, promiscuity. Yeah, yeah exactly. a little bit of that. Ms. Um, McFarlane, just as a Wrapping up question, I guess. Um, you know, in the three years that you've been here, um, you know, you've been the principal that I've known, that I kind of came in with, and then I guess, you know, now matriculating with. Um, and I think over the course of these three years, just in terms of the student experience on campus, um, we've seen a lot of growth in terms of being able to express ourselves, um, whether it's with the all-gender housing, um, whether it's with all these initiatives, uh, you know, with Spark to kind of lead and find ways of boosting these voices um, with ALES and kind of uh, listening and mm -hmm. responding and actually not just casting them off, but actually taking, um, having the, the modesty to understand that there is something wrong and being able to address it. Um, I think that's something that I think the Exeter community is eternally grateful for. Um, but I know for me personally, I really admire 
How are you going to see these last three years here? Well, thank you, first of all, for those really, really kind words. I, I really appreciate that because it has been a very, uh, I think, a time that Exeter has seen more motion, maybe, than it sometimes has in the past. Right. So, um, and there have been moments where I have thought, oh dear. <laughs> um, but I, I, I appreciate you saying that because I, I hope that that's the case, right. that there's been more openness and you know, just more room for all kinds of playfulness um, and a little less taking of oneself too seriously, which right. you know, I think we all have high expectations for ourselves. And, um, you know, it's good to step back a little right. bit. You know, the leaders of the future world or whatever, the future leaders of the world, but even leaders are humans. Well, and honestly, I have, I have a friend who talks a lot about steering from the back of the boat. And, yeah. um, you know, there are a lot of different ways for people to be leaders. And I think uh, some expansion of that definition. I mean, you know, when I, when I talk to parents at the college weekend, um, you know, because parents are sometimes more anxious than students and make students more anxious than perhaps one needs to be. But I, you know, I always will say to them, I am a, I'm a parent and I know that what, what we want most for our children is that when you're 20 and 30 and 40 and 50 and 60 and 70 years old, that you're in a loving relationship, that you're doing work that matters to you in the world, and that you're the kind of person that your community turns to because you are wise and kind. And that if that happens, um, then there, everything else is noise. And it's so interesting to watch parents, because um, most parents kind of go, ah, right, right, that's really all I want for my child. Right. Um, occasionally there's a parent who goes, whoa, that's not what... <laughs> yeah. But I think that's true for most of us, and I think there are a lot of ways to be that. And to the extent that Exeter can celebrate all of those ways of being the kind of person your community turns to because you're wise and kind, that's really good for us. So, so how will I think back on Exeter? Um, oh, I don't know. I think you know we always rewrite our stories as we go forward, right? So how I will look back on Exeter next week is going to be really different than how I look back on Exeter in a year yeah. or in two or in five. Um, and that's a good thing because, you know, this, the story always evolves. I mean, you've studied history, right? So you know that you don't get to definitively land right. on any particular place or moment. So I think that's, I, I, it's hard to answer that question. I hope that I hope that Exeter doesn't slow down too much. I hope that the spirit of being open to change, of trying things, of risking that they won't be perfect, not letting that stop you, um, I hope that doesn't slow down too, too much. I hope that the, the whole arc of work that we've done about being a more a welcoming and caring community, which has, we started that work when I first arrived around sexual misconduct. Mm. And then with the um, important work of ALES, pushed that work around sexual culture and climate to look at other ways in which we want to be a more inclusive and equitable community and the way in which we want to think about what it really means to live in a diverse community. I see those two pieces as linked. Mm. Um, 
I, I'm confident that that work's going to continue and that it'll have a pretty dramatic long-term effect. Culture change takes five to seven years, and so we're in year three. Right. It's the cycles of you know, the students right. and seeing if it sticks. Right. Well, the cycles of the students and also the cycles of the adults. Like you have to do, you, you have to practice it enough that it takes hold. Right. Um, so I think, I, I, don't, I, I don't think Exeter will go backwards there. I think the, the directions for the strategic plan, those are great, and I feel really good about having been here at a time when those were, came into focus. So I don't know. We'll see. You can, you can ask me when we come back for our five-year reunion. <laughs> the reunion, yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, man. It'll happen faster than you I know. I know, and that's scary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my daughter just came yeah. back from her fifth-year reunion, and she said it was scary how close in time it seemed yeah. and how far away in time it yeah. seemed all at the same time. I don't even know. I, I still feel like I just got here, you know. But, you know, it's the continuing story, I guess. Where are you headed next year? I'm going to, uh, I think, Syracuse. Um, yeah. Great school. Yeah, I I'm got into the communications program and stuff, it's so. absolutely a first-rate program. Yeah. Really a great place to do that work. Yeah. Wow, yeah. congratulations. Thank you. Uh, hopefully I'm going to be able to do more of this stuff uh, over there, but I'm looking forward to it. Principal McFarland, thank you so much. Thank you, awesome. Nick. I really, really enjoyed this. Appreciate it very much. And best of luck to you, and um, we'll see you on Sunday. Yeah. Oh, Lord. <laughs> <laughs>